You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, during this Advent, we are spending some time working with the question of what does it look like to set our hope on the living God? What is that that concrete action of, of setting our hope look like? And we are looking at five prayers in Luke 1 and 2 that surround the birth narrative of Jesus. And these five prayers teach us how to watch for and make ourselves available to the participation in in the work of God. Uh, In the first week, we looked at the Fiat Mihi, Mary's uh, prayer of surrender, let it be unto me as you have said. Uh, The second week of Advent, uh, a prayer of gratitude, the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord uh, last week, Zacharias's prayer, the, the, the Benedictus, a, a prayer of expectancy. And this week, uh, we want to look at the prayer of the angels uh, in Luke 2. And I'd like to read for us now Luke 2, verses 8 uh, through 20. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Bring us to our knees and also to our tiptoes. Help us to connect with the truth that you are here and that we belong to you. Father, teach us in this time and invite us by holding out the gifts that you would have us receive in this hour and then moving out of this place in the strength of those gifts to give witness to your love in our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I think about part of what it means to be a a pastor, it occurs to me that a good bit of my work as pastor has to do with helping people to pray. Uh, 
And frankly, I, I need to confess that I'm a bit stymied by this task, even after 30 years of attempting it. For in that request, teach me to pray, there is something that is akin to the absurdity, if you will, of a pre-verbal child coming to his or her parents and being able to say, teach me to talk. The bottom line is that prayer is the language of relationship, that it's born of a relationship with God, that it is learned in the context of a community, and that like language, we kind of just pick it up. It's a means of initiation into a community. That's what language is. And prayer is not that different from that. It's something that we pick up as a part of God's family. I take some heart in the fact that when Jesus was brought this request, teach us to pray, he, he didn't um, give us a lot of specifics about how to do this. Um, he said things like, essentially, be yourself, use plain language and don't heap up empty phrases. And then he gave them an example of a, a prayer that they might pray called the Lord's Prayer that, that we recite every Sunday. And he also did things like teach in parables about prayer. And he told the story of a, of a Pharisee, a religious man who was praying in the temple, who prayed one way, and yet not far off there was another man who was praying, a tax collector who was praying a very different way. And the Pharisees prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. I, I do everything right, and um, I'm okay. Thanks. And the other guy, who was a tax collector not too far off of him, who was standing in abject humility, said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, it was the latter of the two men that went down to their house justified that day. He gave us some good handles on, on what prayer is about. The difference in that parable is the difference between a religiously affected prayer of an insider, and the heartfelt prayer of one who was truly longing to connect with the living God. Well, it is hard to teach prayer, and it's hard to teach something that we pick up and that we grow into in the context of relationship, but this doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to teach it, and we do try to teach it, and sometimes when we try, what we do is a bit forced and formulaic. I can remember a class on prayer that I took when I was in college as a part of a Christian group that I was a part of on UCLA's campus, and they were teaching prayer um, and teaching us about the elements of prayer, and the, the prayer uh, was in the form of an acrostic uh, with the word ACTS, A-C-T-S, and, and each of those letters had a, a kind of an, an aspect of prayer, and it was, they taught us that it was important to move through prayer in that order and, and to do those things in that order, that, that A, a uh, adoration, and, and uh, C is confession, and, and T is thanksgiving, and S is supplication, and, and you know, they taught us about what all those things meant and, and how we should do it in that order, and I remember the teacher making a special point of telling us that we need to be sure we don't confuse the A and the T, that adoration is something different than thanksgiving. 
And this is always something that we tripped over, you know, or I remember tripping over. I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but it was, it was almost as if we kept getting it wrong, you know, that, that adoration was telling God about God in some ways, I guess, that you, you told God what you appreciated about God's attributes and you just sort of admired God. And, um, and that was supposed to be very different than Thanksgiving, which was thanking God for something that God had done for you. And so as we went to pray, I, I always got this sense that, oh, nah, is that Thanksgiving or is that adoration? What is that? Um, which order is that supposed to go in and, and, and did I get it right? And so there was this sense in which adoring God in the right way with the right words was, was very important. And as we moved to the sea, the confession, I, I often thought that maybe it was important to get the adoration right because if you buttered God up enough, then um, you wouldn't pay much attention to what you were saying about yourself uh, later on. I have come to appreciate Anne Lamott's teaching about prayer where she says there's really only two prayers that we pray. The first one is help, help, help. And the second one is, thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's because adoration, I believe, is rarely the first thing out of our mouth in prayer. It's an attitude that in some ways is beyond words due to an experience of the presence of God. And so if we feel... The need to adore God, it's usually from a stance of not having the slightest idea of how to express that adoration and appreciation. What moves us to adoration is that wordless awe that we feel when we're in the presence of something that is so big that it dwarfs everything else. And it's very hard to find words for that experience. This past Thursday in the Seattle Times, there was an article about the sighting of uh, some blue whales off the coast of Westport, about 25 miles. I don't know whether you saw that article. I didn't realize how big blue whales were until I read this article. Uh, a blue whale can be up to 100 feet long. They had this nice graphic in the Times of, you know, the, the sound transit light rail cars, and the whale was a little bit longer. It can be 100 feet long and weigh as much as 150 tons. It has a heart, according to the article, that weighs two tons. And a child can crawl through the valves. That's big. <laughs> and when it exhales... The blow from its exhale goes as much as 30 feet into the air and, according to the biologist, just sort of hangs there like a geyser hangs before it goes away. So there was some researchers apparently mapping the, the movements of fin whales, and one of them, uh, John, uh, and I'm going to massacre his name here. I think it's Greek. Where is Jim Garris when you need him? Um, Calamboticus or Boticus, uh, something like that. He was out trying to spot these fin whales and he spotted the blow from this 
this whale. And he responded with an incredibly articulate response that I love that the Times quoted him. Uh, Kalambotis' response was, I was like, whoa. In the presence of big things, we are decidedly inarticulate. (laughs) They quote another biologist, Dale Rice, in the same article, who's a bit more articulate, but explains the other quotation when he says, There is no whaler and no whale biologist, no matter how experienced, who is so jaded that his heart does not race at the sight of a blue whale. In the presence of greatness, we become decidedly inarticulate because an experience of our smallness ultimately changes us. It establishes us in a new reality and grants us a brand new perspective. And in matters of faith, we have a word for this. We have a word for this experience of the presence of the greatness of God, and that word is glory. And glory is that, our response to glory is that immobilizing, muting kind of experience of God's presence. In Greek, the word is doxa. It it has the sense of light or brightness that, that shines around us that we are very aware of, that, that this, this sense almost of a blinding light. But I like the Hebrew expression of it so much better. In Hebrew, it is the word kavod. It means heavy, weighty. It's the sense often of the, of the smoke filling the temple, of this unmistakable presence that, that settles in on us and, and weighs down on us and, and is there. But either way, whether doxa or kavod, either way to experience God's glory is in Scripture to be changed, to be shaped, to be established in a new reality. And I believe that this story of the shepherds teaches us about what that looks like. What it looks like to experience glory and to understand yourself and your life in a, in a new way. Their experience instructs us in that experience that we would have in the experience of God's glory. And I believe that what the shepherds teach us is that the experience of God's glory both reduces us and yet it also commissions us. First of all, it reduces us. The initial response to the weightiness of God's presence that these shepherds have is the quite natural response of terror. It reduces them to a place of wordless terror. They are encountering something, someone wholly other than themselves. They're encountering something or someone other than their normal experience, and they are unable to respond. Glory is that experience of God's presence that that tells us the truth, quite simply, that God is God. And that we are not. And quite frankly, that comes as news to us most of the time. But what it does is establish us in in who we are in in relation to God. It, 
it shows us once again that that God is creator and, and we are creature, that God is big and that, that we are small, that, that, that God is wholly other than ourselves. And there's a freedom in this. There's a great freedom in this because it doesn't just cut us off at the knees. It's the freedom that we find when we understand, when we are reduced to our proper perspective in light of who God is. It's the freedom of understanding that we are not the Redeemer that we don't have to hold it all together, that we don't have to figure out everything, that we are in the hands of a loving God who does that for us and includes us in his work. Being reduced isn't just being cut off at the knees and made to grovel. Being reduced is actually being freed to understand that the burden is not ours to carry. It's establishing a boundary around us. And we like to think about boundaries as as constricting in some ways, but this one actually liberates us. It's the pleasant boundary of the 16th Psalm where the psalmist says, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for me because I have a goodly heritage. It's the freedom that comes when we understand who we are in relationship to God and established in the truth that we are neither the creator nor the redeemer. And that is good news. So the experience of God's presence, this glory, reduces us, but it also commissions us. It isn't just about instilling terror in us. It's also about inviting us to take up a place in a story that we couldn't have written. To take up a place in in light of this new reality that God is introducing us to. Because God's self-revelation comes with a communication about how he views us and, and who we are in his eyes. The first thing that the angels say is, is, fear not. Fear not, because this God has not come to destroy you. Fear not, this God has come to bring you good news. Good news for all people, because he's not come to keep you in your place, but to include you in his story. And it's wrapped up nicely in the prayer that the angels pray. The words that they express give us words that that we have no words to express ourselves when we are in that moment. And so if we look again at the, the angels' prayer, the Gloria In Luke 2, he says, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth among those whom he favors. The two truths are right there wrapped up together in the same package. Glory to God. God is God. But guess what? This God has not come among you to destroy you. This God in his mightiness has not come to simply reduce you to nothing or to remind you that you are nothing. This God has come to include you and to tell you beyond any doubt that he brings peace to you. God's best, God's shalom, God's best for you. Because he favors you. Because he is pleased by you. All of that prayer tells us the truth 
that commissions us, that sends us into a, a brand new story that, that we wouldn't have known otherwise. It's an identity that, that leads to action. So the shepherds themselves say, okay, so let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that the angels have talked to us about. They don't simply contemplate the experience of glory and, and kind of fold their arms going back to watching their sheep and say, oh, that was interesting. Or that was true. They say, let us go. Let us go participate in this thing. And, and once they get there, one of the things that we find is that this reality of, of God's story comes crashing into their lives and commissions them, commissions these most obscure, mundane, marginal shepherds. Eugene Peterson says the, the role of a shepherd is kind of like the role, forgive me if you bag groceries, but it's kind of like bagging groceries, he says. It's the person that we sort of ignore, that once we've answered paper or plastic, we don't really know they're there. That's the way shepherds were. But they're included in the story. They're made a part of something bigger than they could have ever expected. And so this reduction is quickly followed by gaining a, a sense of God's given significance to them. They're granted access to the, the things of God. They're invited to participate in, in them. And they began to give witness to them in their world literally telling those in the stable what the angels had said and then rejoicing with all around. We've got a part in this story and we're going to tell you about it. It's the same kind of process that's illustrated elsewhere in Scripture and I, I tell you this because I want you to know that this, this principle that's derived from the, the shepherds is, is in plenty of other places. One of the most profound places that you find it is in the sixth chapter of Isaiah where Isaiah is in the Lord's temple on, on the day of worship, and he experiences suddenly through the, the smoke of the sacrifice and the, the magnificence of worship, he experiences the presence of God. And what's the first thing that happens to him? He is reduced. He realizes that he is a man of unclean lips, that he lives among people of unclean lips. And then God does something to say that doesn't matter. The cherub flies from the altar and takes a coal and touches his lips and essentially says, you're not dirty, you're clean. And then we move to the next phase of this where the Lord asks this question, who will go forth for us? And Isaiah does what he cannot help but do, and that is to say, I, here I am, send me. From glory, to reduction, to inclusion, to commission. Here I am. Let us go into Bethlehem. We can't experience the glory of God and remain unchanged. You know, I haven't been able to read these prayers in Luke and not think about our own experience as a community in terms of what we do every single week when we gather in this space to worship. 
All of these prayers have made me think about our life together in the context of of this act that, that we together participate in every single week. And what these prayers do is they remind me what worship is. For we see it in all five of them. They remind me that worship is our response to an experience of the presence and the holiness and the love of God. They remind me that worship begins with expectancy and surrender and then moves to a place of gratitude and adoration. They also remind me, along with the experience of Isaiah, that this work of worship is dangerous and dicey work. And you wouldn't know it, really, to look at us for the most part. There's a kind of urbane civility that characterizes what we do. When we had our 100th anniversary a few years back, there were pictures up of the church from different eras, and one of them that I took note of and sat in front of and contemplated for quite a while was a picture that was taken from this perspective, uh, or maybe a little farther back, of the, of the congregation on what I call opening day in 1957, um, when the sanctuary was opened for the first time. You see these 1,200 people, 1957, uh, uh, and, and they're all sitting there in, in uh, the women have hats on and gloves. Everybody's wearing suits. Um, and everyone's sitting like this. And I, I thought to myself, I wonder if that's what this building was designed for. Was it designed to simply come in and, and sit down and stand up a couple of times to sing hymns and sit down a lot longer to listen to a sermon and stand up again? Or is something bigger than that happening? And obviously the answer to that question for me is, yes, something bigger than that is happening. But it's hard for us sometimes to recognize that, that that's the case. In light of that photo, I, I happened again on a, a passage that perhaps you've heard before. It's an oft-quoted passage from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, and she talks about worship in this passage. And she says, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. <clears throat> the stakes are high. The action that we are seeking to attend to in this place is to attend to the very presence of God. And Dillard's comments make me ask, just what is it that we expect 
What is it that we expect when we gather for worship? Do we merely expect to receive what we know that we need? Or do we expect to be connected to and encountered by the living God? Do we come with a short of spir- sort of spiritual shopping list of preferred items that we wish to consume while we're here? Or do we come with a question, a prayer for God? A prayer that goes like this, How will you engage me today, O God? What gift do you want to give? And what adventure will be the result? Well, my prayer is it is the second question that we are asking. And so God help us and God guide us as we work with that question. Would you pray with me, please? Loving God, may we have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we might be filled with the fullness of you. To you, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.